0: The issues that matter most, right here, The Drew Mariani
1: Show. On Relevant Radio.
0: With an estimated 5 million Americans stuck at home because of COVID, these absences are leaving many businesses shorthanded and causing a major breakdown in basic functions, basic services. Hospitals are full, lack of staff in New York City, trash pickup, subway delays across the country. Airports face TSA shortages, and schools are struggling to find teachers. And while the Omicron uh, surge has brought case numbers up, deaths and hospitalization rates haven't risen as intensely as they did under the Delta variant.
1: The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant Radio. Yeah, have your uh, grocery store shelves seem bare? How about your trash bins taking a little bit longer to be emptied? Have you noticed that businesses all around you are suffering with a uh, the smaller staff? If so, you're not alone. I was talking right before the broadcast uh, to a colleague of mine who told me that there are estimates right now that five million Americans are out sick due to omicron, and it's leading down of course to a a breakdown in service. I hope you're doing well i don't know whether you've already had your your bout with omicron or whether you're in the battle of your life right now uh, you know i've been under the weather as you might know last week I had been down and out uh, I tried to do the show a couple of days and I just just overdid it and um what's so strange about covid19 and of course there's different variants you've got delta and you've got omicron and you've you've got all these different variations of of uh of COVID, and they all affect you differently some are very pulmonary some are upper respiratory some affect people with you know loss of smell and taste and fog and a whole litany of things uh Whatever I encountered, boy, it just sucked the life out of me. I was so fatigued, and, and to be honest with you, I still am a little bit fatigued. It takes a long time to to rise above this, but uh, you know we're seeing the impact of it. I mentioned it, you know, before Christmas. I knew we were going to get a major spike come the new year, and we're seeing. I didn't expect anything as big as what we're seeing right now, and the implications are pretty wide ranging, from schools. Uh, putting off, you know, reopening to, uh, to restaurants uh, shutting down. Uh, you know, COVID is certainly having a field day right now in our country. I mean, what's interesting is that it's not killing as many people as you think, right? At least not in terms of overall deaths. I mean, the, the Epic Times reported that deaths amongst people 18 to 49 increased more than 40% in a 12 month period ending October 21 compared to the same period. Uh, the year before, before the pandemic. Uh, and that, that's based on death certificate data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. Uh, 40% increase in deaths amongst people, 18 to 49. Now, again, I'm not a physician. I, 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 that, that's, you know, is it COVID? I mean, why such a marked increase for such a healthy and young demographic? That's more than 90,000 additional deaths in that age group. But less than 43% of those deaths involved COVID. Less than 43% of them. Even the, even the insurance industry is taking notice. I mean, one life insurance executive that I heard, he said that they've seen this spike of non-COVID deaths happening as well. And according to the data, the mortality increase was most notable amongst people 30 to 39 years of age. And that, that, that demo and that age group, you know, that particular demo, 30 to 39, deaths skyrocketed nearly 45%. O- only a third involving covid so you know i'm not quite sure what's happening here the cdc apparently thinks some of those deaths could be related to overdoses and clearly that is a problem we're having in our country today you know with these open borders uh we're seeing fentanyl and carfentanil and, and drugs just pouring over over our borders. hundred thousand people have lost their lives this year so far just due to overdose deaths so i uh, it's it's tragic and if you have a loved one battling addiction my heart goes out to you but um you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I'm sure, you know, the experts will be drilling into this, trying to find out exactly what the problem is. But it is a far more serious problem on our hands, I think, than than we think. If it's not COVID driving these numbers, what is? That's too young, too healthy, too vibrant a demographic to suffer the sting of death. You know, COVID is, a, is having a field day, no doubt. Um, the Associated Press reported that uh, ambulances in Kansas might be racing towards one hospital, and then change directions mid-route because the hospital they're headed to is full. That, that, that's how rampant COVID has become. There, there's And it's not just COVID. I mean, you no, know, it is COVID in some respects. There are also employee shortages. You know, a lot of people are, are out sick. I mean, a lot of medical professionals, a lot of medical workers are out sick with COVID. In New York City, um, they're seeing delays in trash and subway services. You know how bad that gets, right? Uh, the firefighters, their ranks are diminishing. Emergency workers, they're diminishing. Airport officials shut down security checkpoints at the biggest terminal in Phoenix, Arizona. And schools all across the country right now are struggling just to find teachers for the classroom. So you'll hear more about that coming up in the final hour. We'll talk a little bit more about COVID and this pandemic and this wave that's coming. We'll dive into it and give you a quick update on on all that as well. You know, I saw an ad in my, my local area here for, you know, uh, you know, Teachers, they just pay, you know, you can go get a certificate and be a substitute teacher for a year. They're having a real problem. Uh, On another note, you might remember last week that India had denied the missionaries a charity renewal of their foreign donations license. Remember we were talking about that. I I I said, I I don't understand why they would do that. It's kind of silly, right? These are, this is an organization that's helping the most vulnerable, the poorest of the poor. They're providing a service to the community and to the country. Uh, For some reason, just to give you an update, uh, Any charitable organization in the subcontinent has to have a license from the national government in order to receive donations out of that country. And the Indian government has been denying those licenses to thousands of organizations. And and on Christmas Day, they told the missionaries of charity, yeah, sorry, your license has been denied. And the sisters were thinking about leaving. Well, the backlash against that, it, it must have been just too great to handle. So on Friday, the government came out told missionaries that they were going to renew their five licenses. And that means that they're going to be able to start receiving money again from outside of India to serve more than 22,000 people who are dependent on their charitable efforts. Um, and, And that's an answer to prayers. I know a lot of people were praying for them. I'm sure those old sisters were as well. And I'm sure Mother Teresa was interceding in a very powerful way. So a little bit of good news there for you. Hey, in Knoxville, Tennessee, let me tell you what's going on there. On New Year's Eve, uh, you probably, have, I don't know if you heard the story or not. I, am always curious when I see acts of vandalism or, or acts of arson at particular places, there was a fire that actually raced through the local Planned Parenthood. And after an investigation, the fire department determined that it, it was deliberately set. Um, uh, thank God nobody was in the building at the time. So no one was injured. Now, pro-life leaders like, like Lila Rose and Abby Johnson, among others, uh, of course they have roundly condemned the all you know the the arson and of course they're certainly denouncing the killing of the unborn children that takes place in that building too uh, but they've also denounced the deliberate use of of, of violence to try to stop uh, that killing uh, knoxville fire department investigators uh, have determined that it was intentionally set saying that the person or persons there was somebody who did this and i hope it's not a pro-lifer i hope it's I certainly hope it's not the case um they have not yet been identified here's what officials are reporting
2: Knoxville fire officials say a fire at a Knoxville Planned Parenthood clinic was intentionally set. Today, Planned Parenthood in Knoxville said it will take more than $2 million to rebuild its center on Cherry Street. The building burned down on New Year's Eve.
1: On December 31st, the Knoxville Planned Parenthood building erupted in flames. Ashley Caulfield, the CEO of Planned Parenthood Tennessee, visited the site this morning. She says it's not over. We are going to rebuild and continue to provide services here at Knoxville. Mm-hmm. So we'll see what happens there. You know, we have to, uh, you know, of course, uh, pray for whoever's doing this. It's so, quite often I think the person is just sick and demented. I certainly hope it's not somebody who thinks, hey, I'm going to burn down the Planned Parenthood so abortions don't take place. I know some people may think that's justifiable. You know, you're going to save lives by doing that. But, you know, um, there are other ways. Uh, I, I think to to go about something like that. So, hey, on another note, I want to talk about today's energy uh, prices. They are soaring, as you probably have known. Energy prices uh, are going through the roof, and it's likely just a sign of things to come. And this rise can be be blamed on a uh, on a variety of things, including the demand uh, rebound after the lockdowns ended, and of course, a, a drop in renewable electricity output from. Uh, other areas as well. Uh, what are you going to see? I don't know if you've seen your electric bill or your heating bill right now. Are you seeing your energy costs come up? I, I saw something in the state of California. I saw gas prices were like $6.30-some cents a gallon. I mean, $6 a gallon. So nuts. Uh, especially if you're in other parts of the country. And that might be a little bit more common there. But uh, it's a lot of money to fill up your tank. That's for sure. Um, you probably are paying a lot at the pump right now, right? And, um, well, probably a lot more than you were last year. And when you pulled up to the pump, the national average was what? Uh, around 240 a, a gallon. That's about a year ago, on, on average, across the country. And this according, I think, the to AAA. Um, today, $3.30 a gallon. And, and AAA was, was saying in the report I had seen, uh, prices are going to go higher. They are going to go up. And of course, uh, the, prices started going up almost as soon as the biden administration took office because the president of course canceled the keystone pipeline project on his first day i mean president biden uh he took his executive pen and boy he issued more executive orders than anybody's ever seen right just it was wild um he gave uh, of course russia the green light to go ahead and to uh you know finish their pipeline when he disassembles our own puts the brakes on it and again some argue it's a it's part of a much bigger picture an agenda to if you can You know uh, force the, the the cost of fossil fuels to go up It begins to make green energy look just as uh, you know just as affordable um, you know again our keystone pipeline is um, President canceled it day one. Without that connection to Canada, we lost a major source of energy. If you heat your house this winter with fuel other than wood, it's turning out to be a cold winter around the country. Uh, You might have noticed that the heating bill has gone up. Natural gas, propane, home heating oil, all of that has gone up significantly in price since last winter. Costs keep going up. That means those who are poor, and here's really where my heart goes. You know, I think of You know, young adults, I think of people who are not making a whole lot of money, those who have trouble making meat, those who are having difficulty are going to depend a lot more on the government or or charitable resources to try to stay warm. They're going to need it. They just can't make their ends meet. Unfortunately, the projections are that the prices are not going to come down anytime soon. And our reliance on foreign sources of oil, guess what? It's going to increase. Why? Because the administration is pushing ahead with its plan to to depend more on renewable energy. As I said, they want to go green. And as a result of it, the higher that your fossil fuels go, uh, the more attractive uh, that becomes. I'm joined right now by uh, Bjorn Lumborg. He is president, uh, Bjorn uh, Lumborg, I should say, is the president of the uh, Copenhagen Consensus and visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. His latest book is False Alarm How Climate Change Panic. Costs us trillions, hurts the poor, and fails to fix the planet. If you want to learn more, here's the website for you. It's CopenhagenConsensus.com. And Bjorn, I'm very grateful to have you today. Good afternoon.
2: It's great to be here. Thank you very much, Patrick.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, this is uh, this isn't just happening in, in the US. It's it's happening all over Europe as well. We're seeing energy prices continue to go north. what's the impact on energy prices? that you're seeing on, on your side of the pond and what's, what's driving it globally?
2: Well, so very clearly, as you point out, there's a there's a lot of different reasons. Uh, part of it is that we're coming out of the COVID. Uh, certainly in, in Europe, it's also because uh, we've seen dramatically lower wind. Uh, so basically wind has been producing less energy than we expect for the last nine months. And that means we've used up our gas uh, uh, storage. Uh, it's also and this is the long-term trend, it's also because of climate policy. Now, climate policy is by no means the only reason why these prices are going up, but you know, the wind will start blowing again and we'll eventually be out of the pandemic. But because a lot of governments are so focused on green energy, they are going to make these prices go up and up and up, because that's the logic of it. If you remember, Barack Obama actually was... Uh, you know, slightly unwise in in, yeah. in in actually saying that. He said uh, his policies, his climate policies would necessarily have electricity prices skyrocket. Skyrocket was the word that he used himself. Right. Uh, you know, most politicians now are much more cautious and say, oh, it's going to be a good thing. It's actually going to make you richer and all that stuff. But the reality is if you want to switch people from reliable and cheap fossil fuel, you will end up with higher prices, you will have to force people in to less reliable and less often uh, less desirable energy sources. Now, climate change is a real problem. But we are risking, as you also pointed out, a lot of especially poor people having very bad winters and having a much worse life than they otherwise could have had.
1: So what's the impact of global warming on the poor versus the impact of rising energy prices right now? I mean, this push towards renewable energy is supposed to decrease global warming. Do you, do you buy into that or how do you read it?
2: Yeah, so so look, global warming is a real problem, but it's often being sold as this end of the world story uh, that, you know, it's uh, President Biden likes to say and many, many others, it's an existential crisis. No, it's not. Right, right. That's not what the UN Climate Panel tells us. Right. It is a problem to give you a sense of proportion uh, the UN estimate that global warming, the negative impact of global warming by the end of the century will be equivalent to somewhere between 3 and 4% reduction in your average income by the end of the century. Most of it, it will not actually be in income, but it's the equivalent. Uh, But remember, we're also going to be 450% as rich as we are today by the end of the century. Each person will be 450% as rich as he or she is today. So by the end of the century, global warming is going to feel like we are only 434% as rich rather than 450. (laughs) Yes, it's a problem. No, it's not the end of the world. However, if you increase fuel prices right now for people, That's obviously gonna cost an immense amount of hardship. One of the best ways we know this is, remember uh, in the US, about uh, 2,500 people die each year from heat deaths, but more than 120,000 people die from cold deaths every year. This is from the global burden of disease estimates. This is an enormous amount of people that die. And when you make fossil fuels and especially cheap available fuels more expensive, It means people can't keep their homes as heated. What we found happened last time we did this. uh, If you remember when fracking came along in 2010 Mm -hmm. uh, or around 2010, it made gas prices much cheaper. And it actually meant so, so many more people could keep their homes comfortably heated that the academic estimate is that it saved 11,000 lives every year. It saved 11,000 people from dying from cold deaths every year. When we're seeing the prices go back up, we're probably staring at the same kind of extra number of deaths. That's a lot of people. It's not the end of the world either, but it's a lot of people, and certainly this is an important issue we need to have in mind as well.
1: Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about what happened in the state of Texas last year. They had this freak winter storm. It hit. People were left without power for days because of how much renewable energy that they were relying on. I, I just saw a backup on i nInety five in the state in uh, in uh, along the East Coast here of the United States, and and there was a major storm that hit, and people, you know, they had fuel in their cars, and they were able to be refueled and get going. That was all energy. If that was all green, if it was all battery, how would you get those cars going? What about the people in Texas? Mm -hmm. How reliable is renewable energy? Because these are unexpected events. A blizzard that shuts down, you know, people are stranded for a day in in their automobiles. You know, they run out of gas. Uh, The state of Texas brought to its knees how reliable is this? And, and and what are your thoughts on it in the future? Do we have to bite this bullet, go through this difficult storm in order to have a uh, you know a brighter future? How, how do you read it?
2: Yeah. So there's a there's a couple of things we, we we just need I th- I think the the Texas example is probably not a, a terribly good one because all energy sources uh, 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 copped out and and a large part of those is just simply Texas hasn't weatherized their energy system well uh, but you, you, the fundamental question that you're asking is a sound one and a, an important one namely that you know renewable energy is not very reliable I mean it comes from the idea that the sun is only there in the in the daytime and only if it's pretty much unclouded the wind is sometimes there sometimes not and and you know if you look at the uh at the uh statistics we now have many years of data uh for instance in germany there is predictably every year about five days where the wind is not there at all then people will come and say oh but we have batteries but the truth is batteries only cover a very very small portion so The U.S. right now has batteries to last for about three minutes of its electricity consumption. Uh, By 2030, the IEA estimates that you will be able to last almost 10 minutes. You're not going to get through five days uh, with batteries. Uh, You're nowhere near that. So what you really need and what we now are actually doing is you basically buy two energy systems. You buy solar and wind. And then you have the entire fossil fuel backup. That doesn't work because that means you're basically paying for both of them. Now, you're not paying for the fuel when the sun or the wind is running, but it actually makes energy more expensive. That's why you see across the entire world, energy becomes more expensive. We're back to you know, the Obama skyrocketing energy prices. You need to do that. And it's inevitable that you will get that. This is not the way that you're going to fix climate change. Because remember, most people don't want to pay all that much. You ask Americans, how worried are you about climate change? They, they, you know, they're they concerned. They'd like to do something about it. Then you ask them, how much are you willing to pay? Uh, about $100 is where about a majority starts saying, no, we don't want to pay that. You're not going to get you know, uh, Biden's uh, uh, $2 trillion or w- what is essentially you know, at least uh, a couple of thousand dollars Per person, per year, in cost, through when a majority of the American people don't want to pay a hundred and fifty dollars a year.
1: Yeah, I, I know you wrote uh, in your article about a recent study in Nature found reducing emissions by eighty uh, percent by twenty fifty will cost, I think something like two point one trillion dollars in today's money annually by mid century, yep. and. Um, you know, the cost of reducing or the cost of achieving 100% reduction is going to be a lot higher. You know, I know that you did a, um, uh, a cost benefit analysis um, a while back on the UN's millennial goals. And I know they set, they tried to uh, set a bunch of sustainable uh, goals, sustainable development goals, uh, but couldn't prioritize them. They there were like, I think, 200 of these goals. And I know you went through those. And You said ultimately the top pri- priority was nutrition and education of children in developing countries, not climate issues. Can you expand on that? Sh- share, share a little bit of that, if you could. Yeah. So, so, look,
2: when you ask good people of goodwill around the world, what should we do? You know, it's only a question of letting them ramble on. They'll eventually end up saying we should do all good things in the world. And, of course, if there was no limit to money, we should do Everything. And that was unfortunately what the UN did a couple of years ago. So all nations, including the US, have signed up to this. It's uh, 169 targets. We basically promised to end war and end hunger, end poverty, uh, end global warming, uh, end pretty much everything and get everybody in school and you know, make the world a wonderful place and, and, and rainbows and, and, and unicorns and the whole thing. And, and again, if, if there were, money was no pro- issue, sure we should do all those things. But we don't. We don't actually focus on all things. And that's where I come in and say, and uh, I work with a lot of the world's top economists, and uh, you know, seven Nobel laureates in economics, trying to focus where can you spend money and do the most good. And as you point out, there's a lot of things that are not very effective, and there are some amazingly effective things. For instance, tuberculosis, the world's biggest killer over the last 200 years. It's killed about a billion people, but we fixed it. We know how to deal with it now, so it's not a problem for you or me or anyone else in the rich world because we don't get it, and even if we get it, we just get treated from it. But it kills about a million and a half people every year, mostly poor and uh, uh, you know very, very poor and often uneducated people. We could help most of them survive, not die, and leave their kids to fend for themselves. There's so many things that we can do at very low cost. As you pointed out, education, we've gotten most kids into schools now, but they're still not getting very good education, again, especially in the developing world. And we know how to do some of these things, not all of them, but some of these things like, for instance, getting them a better understanding, which is basically through streaming, that is teaching the kids according to their ability, uh, not just because they're you know, eight years old, they're together with a lot of other eight-year-olds doesn't mean they're at the same level. And one of the ways you can do that is through software. So give the schools an iPad. Yes, that's costly, but it turns mm-hmm. out that it improves the kid's educational outcome, even if they don't only use it one hour a day and they'll wow. share it with a lot of other kids, they will learn as much as if they had gone to wow. the regular school, which is not terribly good for three years. So again, these are places where we can spend a dollar and achieve amazing benefits. One of the things that you know blows my mind is a lot of kids don't get enough food. That's terrible and immoral by itself, but it also means that their brains don't develop as well as they could. If we could get them more food, and we can do that very cheaply, it will cost about $100 per kid across the developing world, we can make sure a lot of these kids will have their brain develop more, They will be smarter. They will go to school. It's often a crappy school, but they will actually learn a lot more. They'll stay longer and they will become much happier. They'll become better parents. They'll become better uh, 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 husbands or wives, but also, and crucially, they will be more productive and help their countries grow better and richer. There are a lot of these things. These are things we know how to solve and we Mm -hmm. can solve very cheaply and very effectively instead Most leaders in the rich world are saying, well oh, no, we're all going to die from climate change, which is wrong, but it is a problem. And then saying we're going to spend most of our money here. That's the real problem that we end up spending so much money on bad yeah. solutions that will only do a little good instead of the amazing things that we could do for the world that really needs it.
1: Well, Mr. Lomborg, thank you for your clarity uh, and, and for you know all that you're doing to, to bring this truth forward. Your latest book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet, is available at CopenhagenConsensus.com, or I'm sure maybe it's your book source. Thank you for your time. Keep up your good work. I hope we can talk again. I really you. enjoyed our conversation. Let's do that. Thank you very much. Right, thank you. You got it. That's uh, Bjorn uh, Lomborg, president of Copenhagen Consensus and visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Stay with me when we come back. I'm going to tell you what's happening in our country that to me is just absolutely mind numbing. Uh, non citizens can now vote. Stay with me. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit relevantradio.com. Flash Forrester. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. You might hear some of these headlines and think, this
0: can't possibly be true.
1: You want answers. I want the
2: truth.
0: Or is it? You can't handle the truth. See if you can discern the myth from the reality.
1: Is this real life?
0: Let's play fact or fiction. Yeah, this is real life. The Drew Mariani Show on Relevant
1: Radio. Yeah, we should play fact or fiction. Let me ask you a question: Is this true or false? <laughs> non citizens have a right to vote now. That well, let me rephrase it: uh, Fact or fiction? Non citizens, uh, you know, have a right to vote becomes law now in New York City, starting next year. Eight hundred thousand legal permanent residents will be el- eligible to vote in municipal elections. Fact or fiction? It's fact. Imagine if, like, I was just saying this to my producer this morning. Imagine if you're going to Italy, right, or you're going to France or Germany or I don't care, any other country, right? You're on a tourist visa or a student visa, you know, and when you go, it just so happens that they you know, volatile government collapses. There's a snap election called and it's going to happen on the last full day you're there. And it's not just the national government, but the provincial, the city, the town governments as well. You, of course, are an American citizen, right? You're You're not Italian or French or German or whatever country you're in. But what if, and I'm just making a hypothetical statement here, what if the city you were in had a law that allowed non-citizens who have been in the country for 30 days to vote in their local elections? Here you are, an American citizen with a chance to influence what's going on in a city where you do not live. Hey, Did you go and vote? Do you do it? Of course, the the question isn't a purely hypothetical one. If you're talking about an Italian citizen who happened to be living in New York for at least thirty days before an election, or German, or a, Fran- a French Frenchman, right? Uh, there's a new law that went in effect yesterday. After the new mayor there, Eric Adams, he decided to take no action on a bill that allows legal residents of the city who've been living there for 30 consecutive days to vote in municipal elections. It starts starting next year. The law is going to allow more than 800,000 non citizens to vote in any local election, including for the mayor. I mean, they can influence who's going to be the mayor of that city, right? Or city council, uh, influence all kinds of tax questions. See, laws like this have been passed. It's not just New York. Uh, They've been passed in towns in Vermont and in Maryland and are right now, I believe, under consideration in Illinois. Uh, I think Maine and Massachusetts are also considering this. But New York is the largest city to pass one. And the Republican National Committee has filed suits against two cities in Vermont on the issue saying that their laws violate the state's constitution. So I thought, look, this is important to look at. Uh, I've, I've spoken to several people who are immigrants to this country. And they had said that after, you know, going through, learning the history, passing all the tests, going through the process, one of the greatest things they looked forward to was the ability to vote, to cast their ballot, to have a say, right? Do these policies diminish that? Do we water it down? Is it bad for our country? Uh, let's talk about it for a moment. I, I think it's worth discussing. It's all, often a slippery slope. Once this passes, then what happens? Where does the bar get moved? I'm joined by the senior legal f- uh, fellow at the Heritage Foundation, of course, a former member of the Election Federal Elections Commission, Hans von Spakovsky. He's the author of a book called Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk. A longtime friend of the program often guides us through these very uh, complex and, and sometimes confusing issues when it comes to the vote. Hans, welcome. Good to have you here. Happy New Year to you.
0: Well, Happy New Year to you, too.
1: Always good to talk with you. Yeah, you see this headline, a little bit salacious, you know, or a little t- titillating, if you want. I'm thinking, what? Non- non-citizens can vote? L- let's talk about it in terms of w- whether there's any merit to this or, or not. I know the Republican National Committee has sued a couple of cities in Vermont saying that the laws violate the state's constitutions, but why does it seem like these laws, you know, I, you know, why, 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 why do other states think they're good? I mean, maybe I start there. I mean, what, what's the, what's the pro for this? What's the con for this?
0: Well, the pro for this apparently is uh, folks saying, "Well, these people are here; they're paying taxes, therefore they should be able to vote." But the problem is, is that it does diminish citizenship—the um, yeah. ability to vote. That's a privilege. Um, It's something you earn that privilege uh, if and when you apply and become a citizen, because if and when you apply and become a citizen, you're not only um, acquiring the the rights and liberties of our Constitution, but you're also taking on the responsibilities and the responsibilities, for example, to to talk about one very specific one is um, the responsibility to help defend this nation. You know, if we were to get into a war and they found it necessary to bring back the draft, um, you or I as a citizen, we could be drafted, but no alien uh, could be drafted under our Constitution and under our laws. Um, and yet they want to give these aliens the ability to vote. And listen, you, Drew, you said before you know, they're estimating 800,000 voters. That's a lowball estimate. And let me tell you why. Um, Supposedly, this is only going to apply to uh, permanent resident aliens, you know, legal, legal aliens in the United States. But remember, (laughs) New York City is a sanctuary city with a sanctuary policy. They go to great lengths to avoid asking aliens, particularly those who apply for government benefits, whether or not. They're in the U.S. or not. So there's absolutely no way that they are going to check and verify whether an alien registering to vote is actually in the country legally or or not. And it's estimated there's probably at least uh, another half a million illegal aliens in the city. That brings us up to potentially 1.3 million aliens voting in the city, I think, in the last mayor's race. Mm-hmm. only about a million and a quarter of people turned out to vote, less than the number of aliens who may, may now get registered. Wow.
1: Th- those are amazing numbers. You know, and I just think of these naturalized citizens, you know, the- these people who've gone through the process, they understand how valuable it is, yeah. as well as citizens in general. Um, is there any outrage over this? I, I mean, I almost feel like they're being disrespected and and in some respects, you know, you know the value of their own vote is being diminished,
0: oh, I think uh there's a lot of people upset about it in fact, a lawsuit um i i think I was just looking at a lawsuit that has just been filed by um several i think Republicans uh in the city of new york and and the uh, statewide Republican party chairman and I actually think they have a pretty good case. the reason being that If you look at the New York Constitution, Mm -hmm. um, the way the Constitution reads, I I think you have to be a citizen to vote, not just in statewide elections, but also in local elections. So I think this law that the city council has passed, this ordinance, is frankly a violation of the state constitution.
1: I, I Hans, you know, you're the expert here. Explain this to me because I, I wonder where it leads. If the law allowed to stand, yeah, are local elections the only ones where this will be allowed, or will we suddenly see, okay, well, state elections are next or all right, federal elections. Uh, ha, ha, is this a slippery slope? I mean, how do you see this working?
0: Well, the people that are pushing this want it to be a slippery slope. And you know it's very clear when you look at the supporters of aliens voting, that they want them voting in all elections. In fact, this is part of the whole movement that's been going on for the last 20 years by the supporters of illegal immigration to extinguish the line between legal immigration, and illegal immigration, and between between uh, aliens and, and citizens. Um, they would have to change federal law because right now federal law bars aliens from registering and voting. Right. And most state constitutions bar aliens from voting in state elections. So they would have to change that too. So I think that's a pretty big uphill climb. But that to me, I I think is very clearly their goal and their objective.
1: It's just, um, I'm assuming this is politically driven. Uh, You know, there's a particular party that sees this as advantageous to holding power or or, or what's, what's the driver behind it? What's the mindset or the agenda? Is it just trying to be politically correct uh, you know i don't understand why somebody thinks this is a good idea other than they somehow can benefit from it
0: i think there are two um two things driving this i mean one is like i said those folks who uh think that we should have open borders that there should be no difference between aliens and citizens um yeah. And I think for a lot of others, political consultants in particular, um, they want this uh, on the Democratic side, on the liberal side of the aisle, because they think it's going to help them uh, stay in power. They believe they will win elections. They believe that these aliens will overwhelmingly vote for liberal Democratic candidates. And that's one of the reasons they're pushing this.
1: No. so do you expect a suit to be filed against this law or what's coming next yes
0: like i said I think I think a lawsuit already ha- has just has been, been filed yeah. against
1: okay. it and i I think they have a good chance of winning it, just in terms of the, the the nation itself I know that this measure stands in sharp contrast to a lot of other efforts nationwide um, when it comes to, to voting in August Texas passed a bill that limited the the use of absentee you know voting and drop boxes. Um, uh, that measure has been challenged by the Justice Department. Um, wh- where do we stand right now? Because after the Trump-Biden election, it, it, there was sheer chaos when it came to uh, voting in, in, in our country. Are, are things being sifted out now? And what do you see for the midterms?
2: A lot
0: of states passed good election reform um, efforts to fix some of the holes and vulnerabilities in the system. Texas is a good example. Texas, Iowa arizona uh, georgia florida a number of other states did that now their lawsuits as you would expect have been filed uh, against these by uh, left-wing advocacy groups claiming they're discriminatory and the justice department under merrick garland has actually sued texas and georgia i think if those states put up a spirited defense they will win because the claims of discrimination just aren't supported by the evidence i mean claiming that, for example, a voter ID law is uh, is discriminatory on its face, we know that's not true because the the turnout data from states that have had these laws in place for a long time show it's not true. It doesn't keep anybody from voting.
1: Um, so
0: I, I actually think we're going to be in better shape in the midterm elections than we were in the 2020 elections.
1: Well, that sounds great. Well, I know you and I'll be talking much more in the not-too-distant future, and I'm always grateful for your contribution. Uh, Your book, Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk. I'm assuming that's still available. Were you working on a new book? Is that the last time we spoke? Well, in fact, we have a,
0: John Fonda and I have a new book out. It came out in November. It's called Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. Oh, wow.
1: We got to check that out. Where's that available? Uh, 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 Amazon,
0: Barnes & Noble, any, anywhere fine books are sold.
1: That sounds great. Well, Hans, thank you. Keep writing and keep up your great work. I'm grateful for your Thanks time. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. All right. That's Hans von Spakovsky, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation, former member of the FEC, the Federal Election Commission, and uh, check out his new book. I've got to take a short pause. When we come back, uh, let's talk more. I, I, a friend of mine who's a Catholic priest and an exorcist sent me a... Um, a text last night about a miracle that took place. He says, Drew, you should look into this. I want to share it with you. When I come back, stay with me. Hey, today we'd like to thank Carlos, who's listening in Texas, for donating his Nissan. And you can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles by visiting relevantradio.com car.
0: The Chaplet of Divine Mercy begins soon on Relevant Radio.
1: Yeah, we'll pray in about 15 minutes or so. So if you want to get in, let me give you the number. It's 888-914-9149. Try to take, I don't know, at least five, six calls, maybe a few more if it's possible. Uh, It all depends on the time. But you can, of course, get in at 888-914-9149 coming up. But do yourself a favor. Do somebody else a favor. Tell them about the chaplet. Let them know that it's going to be uh, starting, and it's a great way to spread devotion to divine mercy, and I think you'll be blessed for it, and I think somebody else will be too. I know a lot of people are suffering right now with COVID and going through all sorts of ailments and, and difficulties in their life, so um, spread the message of mercy. You'll certainly be blessed by it. Hey, over the weekend, I got a text from a, uh, a friend of mine. He's a he's a Catholic priest. He's an exorcist, and um, he sent me a story that immediately got my attention, and he says, you ought to look into this. And it was, a, it was a story that came, um, well, it pertained to a Muslim mother whose child was paralyzed and went to seek the intercession of St. Sharbal Malouf. She went to his tomb. And let me just share what the, the tweet was that he sent to me. He says, after uh, this procession, this Muslim lady, she put her baby on the altar of St. Charbel, and a miracle happened. The baby, according to medical reports, had been paralyzed. And the grandmother took him to the pre- procession, praying for his healing. And once they finished the procession, they put dirt from the original burial ground of St. Charbel uh, on the baby and uh, blessed him with the oil. And instantly, his legs started to move, his arms began to move. Uh, the child was miraculously and instantly healed <laughs> as a result of it. St. Charbel Malouf, just to put a perspective on this, and and this priest sent this to me, and Father John, thank you very much. Uh, He knows of a woman who was personally healed of deafness. She had no sound through the intercession of Charbel Malouf. There have been over 26,000 miracles attributed to the intercession of St. Charbel since his death. He died in 1898. And you can see he's got a bit of a track record uh, and is not slowing down anytime soon. So when I hear these stories, I know we're about to pray the chapel coming up. I just I just want to throw that out to you because these things, they help build my own faith. You know, I, Satan loves to rob us of our hope and our trust. He loves to make us think that that paralysis is permanent, that, that blindness is permanent, you know, that that cancer is permanent, that that financial quandary you're in is permanent. That's what Satan wants to do. I don't believe it. I really don't. I believe that that with God all things are possible. St. is one of those great examples. There was another one uh, that happened just before this where there, there was a boy uh, who was diagnosed with a malformation below the bladder. And um, he had some problem that prevented the urine out of his body and damaged his bladder and his kiddie, kidneys during gestation. And um, doctors and, and nurses knew the child probably was not gonna make it. And um, they turned to St. Charbel and that boy is now celebrating his very first birthday. Um, so miracles happen all the time. If you don't know who Sharbo was, he was a Maronite monk, a priest who lived in Lebanon. And I don't have time to share all of his story. He's, he's, he's one of those powerhouse saints. I put him in the category of a of a Padre Pio with the, with the wonders and the miracles that surrounded him. Um, he was known not only for his holiness, his prayer, his fasting, his penance, but for the miraculous healings uh, that have taken place. And he had this great desire to unite both Christians and Muslims. And I think we should turn to him. I think we should seek his intercession for that unity that seems to evade so many. Um, the, the, what, one of the miracles that ultimately led to his beatification, and there are many. Like I said, there's 26,000 miracles attributed to him. So we're going to call upon him today, along with St. Faustina, for your healing, for for your answered prayer. Uh, there was a, a nun. Her name was Sister Mary... Uh, Kamari uh, she was a sacred heart nun and uh, she was 30, 30 years old being very ill she had gastric ulcers this is back like in the 1930s and had multiple surgeries wasn't able to eat swallowing became very difficult her voice got really weak and in addition to these ulcers she began to well she suffered osteoporosis and and her bones became brittle she lost her teeth her right hand became paralyzed Can you imagine the suffering of going through that you think you have it bad Imagine that. So in the early 1940s, her health became so bad, she ended up bedridden. And uh, after suffering and enduring, this religious nun requested to be taken to the tomb of St. Charbel. And when she touched the tomb of this holy hermit, she described what felt like, like an electric shock, she said, went through her body. And she stood up unassisted, completely, one hundred percent cured. Now the detailed medical tests they confirmed, yeah, there's no explanation for this. Her healing was one of the miracles that confirmed, uh, you know, the the well, led to the beatification of Saint Charbel Malouf. And you know, I was struck by that because I think of Maureen Dagan, the girl who was healed at the tomb of Saint Faustina. She experienced something there with Father Seraphim Mikolanko that led to the beatification of Saint Faustina. You you, you talk about these these pilgrimages to these holy places, the intercession of these saints, that, that electric shock or that heat that races through the body, that's what happened. There was a, a blacksmith, and in these situations, I have a friend whose son lost uh, his vision uh, due to an accident with a gun, and um, they've turned to St. Charbo, and I, I still believe that God's time's not our time. I mean, God can heal today, or he might want you to endure another year, or another 10 years, but he can certainly do anything, and he can restore sight. One of my favorite stories, you know, Padre Pio had a very similar story. Um, it was a, a story of a blacksmith who was working uh, in his, his smithy when a, a piece of metal damaged his eye and uh, he was no longer able to see out of his right eye. So the doctors said, look, we should really remove your eye. And, and the blacksmith said, no, I'm, I don't want my eye taken out despite the pain that he was supposedly in. In 1950, that's when this took place, he began to intercede to St. Charbel. He asked St. Charbel to cure him, to restore his sight. And one night after prayer, this, this, this blacksmith was visited by Charbel in a dream. And the saint asked him to make a pilgrimage to his monastery. And when this man arrived, he went to confession, he went to mass, and that night he just spent time praying in front of St. Charbel's tomb. The next morning, he awoke. He had no pain in his right eye. He was completely cured. A medical board confirmed that his eye had undergone a complete and miraculous healing and regeneration. It had regenerated like the man that Padre Pio appeared to, who was lost his eye in a dynamite uh, explosion, had no eye at all. And he felt Pio come to him, put his hand on him. You know, Pio never left his, his monastery there in San Giovanni Rotondo, yet he must have bilocated. And that eye was miraculously regenerated. Uh, the, the Smiths, the blacksmith's uh, miracle was one of the miracles that the Catholic Church confirmed during the process of Sharable's beatification as well. And, and these stories touch me. I mean, when Father sent this over to me, Father Claude sent this, uh, this email about this woman whose paralyzed child was healed, it only you know, I, I wanted to share it with you because I know that when we pray, sometimes we think our situation's impossible. There's no way God can restore an eye that's not there. There's no way. Doctors say I'm only given so many months that cancer's all throughout my body. There's no way, right, that that I'll ever be cured of osteoporosis. There is no cure, right? I mean, these are the things that the world, science, the evil one even would like you to say, to believe. But you know, with God, if it's his will, uh, if it's for the greater glory of God, your situation can be reversed in a second. It can be turned around. You know, heartbeat. And you need to pray with that faith. Submit yourself to God's will, whatever it is. If you are meant to endure, if you're meant to carry that cross, then it's for your own good. It's for your own holiness. So you can achieve an eternal state with God and perhaps even a higher place in heaven. You know? But I think we sure change ourselves and we sure change God because we don't pray with faith. We don't place our trust in God. We don't believe God can really do this. You know, we, we allow the temporal to blind us to really the, the, the supernatural to the fact that God is creator of all the laws of nature can certainly, you know, change those and, and, and suspend those. Uh, One final story, I'll share one quick one with you here too. another one. I love, there was a, um, there was a woman uh, who was born in Syria. Uh, She lived in, in Lebanon for a while and underwent surgeries for cancer. Many people are battling cancer right now. She had cancer that spread to her stomach, to her intestines, and to her neck and was not given a very good diagnosis. And when her tonsils became infected with the cancer, uh, she turned to St. Charbel. And the cancerous growths you know, that now filled her throat made it very painful, you know, difficult to swallow. And she asked St. Charbel. She didn't hold back. She asked for a miraculous cure. But you know what else she did? And this is what I was so touched by. She not only asked for the cure, but she says, if that's not God's will, she says, then give me the grace to bear the suffering. Give me the grace to bear the suffering. So one night she prayed and she said, provide me with the cure to the disease. You know, you're a great saint who cured the blind and the lame. And when I recover from this illness, I'll go and I'll thank you at your shrine. The next morning she woke up and was completely cured, completely cured. Her cure was the final miracle needed to raise St. Charbel to the altars for his canonization in 1977. This is a powerhouse saint. 26,000 miraculous cures. I'm sure there are many more still being reported. You know, when I come back, I'll tell you what, we'll pray the chaplet so you can get in. Let me share one more. I'll share a weird one. You know, I'll share a really weird miracle um, that took place. All right. That and more right after this. We'll pray the chaplain and we'll turn to the great mercy of God. Stay with me.